Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and National Security. I'm Beth Windish, your host, and today we will be talking with Vicki Beer about her new book, Managing Risk in Extreme Environments, Preparing, Avoiding, Mitigating, and Managing. Vicki, welcome to the show. Thank you. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I've been working in risk analysis for extreme events um, for pretty much my entire career, so over 30 years by now, both in industry and for quite a long time now in academia. Um, I've worked on um, nuclear power security and safety and also homeland security issues but also have a wide range of interests in other areas as well, as I think people will see from the book. And for almost 30 years, I've been a faculty member in the Department of Industrial Engineering and the Department of Engineering Physics at University of Wisconsin. So I'm primarily coming from a an engineering and mathematical view of risk, but also recognizing the importance of some of the human, psychological, sociological views as well. Great. And I should mention that the book is an edited volume of several different essays. So I was wondering if you could tell us how it came about. Sure. Um, I was actually initially approached by an editor at the publisher about whether I would be interested in putting together a book on this general topic. And so the process has been actually really fun because I got to pick people that I thought were really outstanding in their different areas and had unique perspectives to share. And so I got to learn more about what some of them do. Um, Some of them I've known for a long time. Some of them I only got to know in the process of working on the book. Um, But you know, in a way, it's a little bit of my dream team of people that I wanted to represent their work and their opinions in the book. And of course, it's never perfect. There are certain topics where, you know, I wasn't able to include them or, you know, the person who I would have loved to write about that issue was not available or whatever. But in the end, I'm pretty happy with how it turned out and with the breadth of different topics and areas that it covers. In the first chapter, you talk about probabilistic risk assessment. How can PRA inform decision-making, and have you seen examples where perceived risk has outweighed the actual risk probability? Sure. Um, There's actually very good examples of both, where PRA has usefully informed decision-making and some where it hasn't been as effective. Uh, Coming from the nuclear background, um, certainly some topics within nuclear power safety have been really um, dramatically affected by PRA. 
So we can show probabilistically, for instance, that if key safety equipment is out of service for too long, that has a direct proportional impact on risk. And so even several decades ago, people were using that kind of perspective to talk to their plant staff and say, gee, you know, is there a reason why this has to be out of service for so long? Or can you accelerate the maintenance and get it back into service quickly now that we know how important it is? So those are some success stories. And, you know, there's others also that I could cite on that. Um, but certainly public perception also plays a big role. And I don't want to say that PRA has some magic right answer that society should just bow down and adopt. Um, every PRA is imperfect, and sometimes the reasons why people are concerned about a particular risk or a particular technology in public perception are well-founded and somebody should look into the reasons for those concerns and see what can be done about them. Um, but as, for instance, Roger Casperson talks about in his chapter on social amplification of risk, sometimes risks do get exaggerated in public perception for a variety of reasons. People may be more apt to be concerned about topics that are, say, in the news recently or very dramatic, etc. And one example that I would say may come into that is, um, for instance, nuclear waste disposal, where I think most technical experts who have worked on that topic feel that actually the technology is pretty safe and reliable and, and trustworthy and that there is not a technical reason why we haven't been able to make progress on waste disposal. Um, but I think in reality, we do live in a democratic society. And so I don't want to say that that should necessarily be outweighed by what a quantitative risk assessment would show. In the end, I think the PRA can usefully inform the decisions, but many of those decisions are part of a political process, and um, we do need to take public perception into account as well. Yeah, and I think that chapter was particularly interesting because you have this strong quantitative background, but you also really recognize the importance of translating those results into effective communication for decision making. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Public risk communication goes beyond just communicating the numbers. Sometimes people think that if we do a risk assessment and compute a bunch of numbers, that all we really need to do to help society understand that is tell them how the numbers came out at the end. But that's not always the most effective way to communicate. Um, oftentimes, people's resistance or concern about a particular hazard doesn't really stem from, you know, lack of knowledge of the quantitative risks, but maybe lack of trust in the institutions or um, 
all kinds of other reasons why they may not be persuaded just by understanding the quantitative results. And so when you talk about risk perception and risk communication, um, I think sometimes PRA people have made a mistake in the past of saying that, well, all we need to do is show the results of the probabilistic analysis, and that will change people's minds about the technology. And I think the reality of risk perception is much more complicated than that. The popularity of the black swan concept has expanded the reach of risk analysis into popular discourse. How has this changed the conversations you have about risk analysis? Sure. Um, I think the concept of black swans, when that famous book came out, um, some people perceived it as really threatening the entire idea of quantitative analysis. And I don't think that's the case. I think that um, many of the kinds of extreme or catastrophic situations that people are concerned about in black swans, whether it's in the finance world or in engineering risks, etc., we actually can take account of them in PRA in probabilistic analysis. So I don't think it requires a complete redirection of our approach or a complete abandonment of the probabilistic approach. But I think over the years, I have come to be a little more sensitive or more accepting of the idea that maybe there are some aspects of risk that really are going to be difficult to quantify. And when you talk about um, what people refer to as the unknown unknowns, yes, in theory, we might be able to put numbers to that. But in practice, there may be other ways that are better for dealing with those kinds of issues, such as um, adaptive risk management, for example, that we can't necessarily quantify everything. Multiple essays discuss the concept of high reliability organizations. What are they and what can we learn from them? Sure. Um, high reliability organizations are actually one school of thought in risk management. Um, there are some researchers who kind of feel like certain levels of technological hazard really are beyond our social ability to deal with them effectively. And people who come from the school of thought of high reliability organizations say, no, that's not true. It's not that these high technology hazards are impossible to deal with, but that they require different skills, different types of organizations, and different organizational cultures than um, kind of more routine risks or hazards might require. So there are some key features of that. I think Ron Westrom in the book does a much better job than I could do at explaining some of those important characteristics. But one characteristic that comes up a lot in people's discussion of high reliability organizations is just openness to new information. 
and especially information about potential risks, even before they're necessarily known, that you can look at, um, is this something that we should be paying attention to? And some organizations have kind of a more bureaucratic approach. You put your concerns in the suggestion box and they're eventually somebody will look at the suggestions in the suggestion box and decide whether we're going to take them seriously. And that process can lead to some risks being neglected. If people know that they are operating in a high hazard environment, we hope and encourage that they should really be highly attuned to those first signs of problems, whether it comes from somebody in a different part of the organization calling you up and saying, hey, I think your group has a problem, you should look into this, or even, you know, people in the community nearby saying, you know, something seems different, the effluent smells different, are you sure everything is okay? Um, and that if you know you're operating in that high-risk environment, you do need to be very sensitive to early signs of problems rather than kind of handling them in a more bureaucratic, siloed type of approach. Um, so that's one very important part of high-reliability organizations is that communication and free flow of information within the organization. Another issue can be redundancy. For example, one of the famous illustrations of high reliability organizations from some of the earliest researchers working in that area was on aircraft carriers, where even after they automated the flight deck to be um, keeping track of um jets taking off and landing from the aircraft carrier on computer, they still kept a manual grease pencil log in parallel with the computer because they know we're supposed to be operating in combat situations. Something could happen that could take out our computer and we can't be left stranded or not knowing the situation if that does happen. So those two things, you know, awareness of danger and free flow of information about danger and also some um, redundancy to help solve problems that might occur are two of the features of high reliability organizations. And I guess in that debate of, you know, are risks avoidable or not? I tend to come down on the side of, well, we really should be doing our best possible job of managing them. Some of these technologies like aircraft carriers or nuclear power plants are not going to go away. And if we just say that, um, throw up our hands and say they're unmanageable, that's not as helpful as looking to see what we can learn, what are the lessons learned from organizations that have established a really good track record. What roadblocks do you think keep organizations from gaining that knowledge and implementing lessons learned? 
I have to say I am not primarily an organizational psychologist or an organizational researcher. So my answers to those questions are only partial answers. Um, but I would say um, one of the things is just that it is an extra burden on an organization. Organizations very naturally get feedback about things that can go wrong day to day, right? What happens if our accounts don't balance or we don't have enough sales or we don't have enough production? That's kind of self-reinforcing that organizations have to pay attention to those day-to-day -day issues and be prepared for them. Um, and so asking them to do more and also think about more extreme hazards or situations that could emerge is just difficult. But I also think there are some illustrations of situations where people have been reluctant to do that partially for political reasons in fields that are under a lot of scrutiny. So for example, with the space shuttle, if NASA is concerned that admitting risk is going to jeopardize funding for future missions, it's kind of natural for them to say, well, maybe we don't want to be totally upfront about the risks that might exist. Um, maybe we don't even want to commission an analysis of the risks if we don't think that we have the resources to fix them. Or if we think again that this could jeopardize, for example, political support for the program. Um, and that's really a difficult balancing act. I once heard someone from the nuclear industry talk about sort of the schizophrenic role of managing high hazard industries where every morning you have to emphasize to your staff that this is still very risky. We are not in a totally, you know, routine environment. We are pushing the envelope technologically. You cannot be complacent. You cannot take things for granted. You really have to be on top of things at all times. And then in the afternoon, that same manager may be telling their local congressperson or a local reporter or whatever, don't worry, we have everything under control because they don't want to jeopardize political support or community support for the program, for the technology, for the facility. And so that is a very difficult balancing act. And I do think there are some situations where organizations have kind of erred on the side of maybe we want to stick with our kind of bureaucratic routine processes of management and not quite own up to some of the risks that we don't necessarily know how to solve yet. Part of the purpose of the book actually is to encourage organizations to take that broader view and think about what other things may not be on their radar yet for um, possible hazards that they should be thinking about and planning for. It's a good segue to the Fukushima incident and it serves as a primary example of an extreme risk in a couple of the different essays. 
could you talk about how you looked at Fukushima and maybe a little bit on your case study looking at nuclear reactors? Sure. Um, it, Fukushima was actually a very interesting case study for me personally, because I was teaching a class on probabilistic risk analysis the semester that that happened. So when Fukushima first occurred in the middle of the semester, I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, I hope this doesn't like invalidate everything that I'm teaching. And <laughs> we end up with some surprise lessons learned that we, you know, hadn't thought about in the PRA space. And really, as information came out about the causes of the accident and exactly what was happening in the reactor during the accident, most of those details were really things that we did know about in PRA of nuclear plants that we had identified, had accounted for. And in fact, the Japanese had not been doing PRA very much and have since Fukushima made a much bigger investment in PRA. So at the prevention level, I think a lot of what happened in Fukushima was things that we did know how to prevent and just weren't using the best available knowledge at the time. So just one example, the diesel generators that provide emergency power to the plant were wiped out by the tsunami. And the importance of the diesel generators was very well understood. So that's something that they could have been prepared for by um, putting the diesel generators up at a higher elevation where they would be at less risk or putting them underground or in hardened bunkers or, you know, there were situations, things that could have been done to reduce the risk ahead of the accident that were not done. And as I said, I think Japan is making a lot of progress in coming up to speed in those areas now. But the chapter by Travidel and his co-authors was very interesting to me. Um, they were some of the authors that I really had not known before starting on the book and became aware of their work. And they talk a lot about what happened after Fukushima was in such an extreme situation that plant staff could no longer rely on pre-planned emergency procedures and really had to start improvising, trusting their own judgment, um, making decisions on the spot in the absence of complete information. And so the aftermath of mitigating the consequences of Fukushima really took us or, or me beyond the realm that we had previously thought about in PRAs. We knew maybe more about how to prevent the situation and less about how to manage it once we got into that extreme event. And it seems like the Fukushima case was described as a case of uh, an extreme risk or a high, uh, a high impact event, but with low probability. Was that a misunderstanding of the actual risk or was that true in that it's difficult for decision makers to know how to prioritize these things? 
again, I think that's one where the prioritization could have been better. Um, I think the Japanese in their planning kind of understated the importance and severity of tsunamis in their planning. One of the things that came out in the news coverage afterwards is that some areas that were below the height of historical tsunamis were still considered safe in Japanese regulatory thinking. And, you know, if people hundreds of years ago knew that the tsunamis could reach that high elevation, you know, that information should not have gotten lost. So, yes, I think the situations that happened at at Fukushima were low probability, but not so low that we didn't need to be better prepared for them. I think, you know, a good PRA before Fukushima would very likely have surfaced that, yes, there is a tsunami risk at this location, and what kinds of things can we do at probably pretty manageable cost to improve the design of the facility and be better prepared for that event. Another topic you touch on in the book is striking that balance between investments in preparedness versus investments in emergency response. And that chapter discusses that topic through the lens of zoonotic diseases. How do you strike that balance between putting money either to to prevent a situation or, or having the resources to respond to an actual event? Sure. Um, Amy Hagerman and Bruce McCarl and their co-authors talk about some of the kind of theoretical issues that should help that balance. Um, For example, if an event is really unlikely, then maybe investing in response makes more sense than investing in prevention. But also, if the event moves really quickly, if you don't have time to respond after it gets started, then maybe that's an argument for investing in protection. I've also seen arguments from other researchers about things like climate change, that if we think climate change or species extinction, for example, might be irreversible, then that's an argument that says maybe response is not good enough. Maybe we really do need to focus more on prevention. And I think in reality, there is kind of a balancing act between those. Um, Just as an example, um, the later chapter by Terry O'Sullivan on infectious diseases among humans rather than animals, um, they're... Every year in flu preparation, we do come into flu season with a plan. Who are we going to vaccinate? What is the standard recommendation? But as things roll out during the flu season, that plan sometimes gets modified. So if we find that certain people, such as pregnant women or young children, are particularly at risk, we may change the vaccination priorities 
if there's a shortage of vaccines because of a manufacturing problem, we may change the priorities. So I think that's an example of something where we do every year invest in prevention, but we still need to be adaptable as things unfold, that whatever plan we had ahead of time is not necessarily perfect for the situation as it unfolds, and we can still adapt accordingly. Yeah, and I think that kind of ties into the idea of resilience and in emergency preparedness, we often hear about the need to improve resilience. However, sometimes resilience is really just about having excess resources. How do you define resilience, especially in times of tight budgets? Sure. That's uh, a good question. Um, for sure, sometimes resilience does involve extra resources, even if those might be somewhat modest. But the example of the aircraft carrier and the guy walking around with the grease pencil to keep track of the jets landing and taking off, it's an example of redundancy. It does take extra resources to do that, but it's not necessarily an overwhelming level of resources. But I think um, almost any organization can become more resilient even without a huge expenditure of resources by addressing some of the cultural issues that are part of, say, a high reliability organization. So, for example, a company doesn't necessarily have to stockpile huge amounts of antiviral drugs in case of a flu pandemic. They can invest in preparedness by having a plan that encourages people to use their sick time if they need it or that kind of thing, just being prepared conceptually and being alert to, you know, is there a warning sign of problems? That kind of thing can go a long way and preparedness doesn't need to necessarily mean having a whole duplicate facility someplace in case your facility gets wiped out with a flood. It can be, you know, just making sure that your computers are backed up offsite or, you know, there's levels of adaptation and resilience that can be achieved at reasonable cost just by being aware of the issues. You say in the introduction that, some key themes from the book are in somewhat contradictory. You say that there, there are methods that already exist to deal with many of these extreme risks, but at the same time, these methods may be imperfect or incomplete. What do we need to do to better manage risk and to identify signs of issues that are emerging? Sure. I think the area that really does need more research, in my view, is the sort of organizational culture side of things. That right now, much of good management for extreme risk is kind of treated as an art form. That we know there are people and organizations that are better at doing it, but we don't really know how to translate that into practical recommendations elsewhere. 
Um, in fact, a number of years ago, the military commissioned a study from the National Academies on um, whether there are lessons learned from business management that could help the military improve its own performance. And the answer kind of came back, well, it's really hard. We don't necessarily have set answers to some of those questions. And I think as you look at the history of technological hazards, if you look back 100 years ago or more, there were definitely technologies that were not very well understood at an engineering level. So, for example, we had boiler explosions that we didn't know how to make boilers strong enough. And now we have engineering codes that tell us how to make boilers strong enough that they're not going to explode in their normal usage. And the engineering side of that has become much better understood. I think understanding management from sort of a scientific point of view is lagging behind somewhat. And now if you look at some of the disasters that have happened, such as Fukushima and why had they not embraced PRA ahead of time or other major hazards that have taken place in other industries, a lot of those issues now are cultural and organizational. How can we get the organization to take these issues more seriously or to be more responsive, more resilient, more prepared, more adaptive. And I think that currently is really where the most important work still needs to be done. What are the main ideas you hope risk managers and policymakers take from your book? Well, I think in the book, as in my teaching with students, there are different lessons for different people. Um, some people come with kind of a predisposition that quantitative analysis can answer all the questions. And I hope they become aware that, well, there are some big cultural and organizational issues that can't necessarily be handled entirely that way. But I think many people in sort of business management, in government agencies who come from more of a qualitative background, business training or um, political science backgrounds or whatever, may not be aware of the extent to which there already are quantitative tools for solving at least some of the problems that they're dealing with. Yeah, the, the book is definitely multidisciplinary and pulling all of those things together. So hopefully that'll be a good starting point for everyone who reads it. Yeah, I think the, the whole field of risk management, part of the reason it's been so interesting to me is because there is no one right answer or no one discipline that has all the answers. Well, Vicki, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we let you go, would you mind telling us about what you're working on now? Sure. Um, one of the things that I started to get interested in after Fukushima, but have continued to work on in the years since then, is problems involving massive relocation of people, like what happened in Japan after Fukushima or in the southern U.S. after Hurricane Katrina, 
what happens when we have to deal with relocating hundreds of thousands, or in the case of Katrina, even more than a million people. And what I found looking at that, we're pretty well prepared for short-term evacuation, even of large numbers of people. We don't always do it equally well, but we sort of understand how to do it well if we follow those lessons. Long-term relocation has surprisingly not been studied very much and, again, not been conceived of as a single field. There are people working at different parts of it, but I've gotten very interested in that. And it's one thing that in future the U.S. may be dealing with it not only because of natural disasters or technological accidents, but even just because of climate change. I've seen predictions that over a period of several decades, there may need to be on the order of 10 to 13 million people relocating away from coastal areas towards more inland areas because of flooding and all the other problems that will go with sea level rise and climate change. And that is an area that has been very interesting to me personally, and again, one that I've been very surprised how little has been done so far. So that's something that I hope to be tackling more within the next few years. It sounds like a fascinating project. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. It was an interesting conversation. Managing Extreme Environments by Vicki Beer is available now from Routledge Books. <laughs>